Welcome to Deal Talk, a private equity podcast by Moonfair. Each episode, our CEO, Dr. Stefan Pauls, sits down with leaders from across the industry to discuss their views on the investment landscape, working with portfolio companies, and the lessons they've learned. Welcome to our latest Moonfair Deal Talk edition today. My name is Stefan Pauls, and I'm the founder and CEO of Moonfair. I can't say it much. I'm so delighted to welcome Blythe Masters as a guest of our deal talk here today with us. Before we go into the session, uh, let me remind you there will be a, an opportunity for a Q&A at the end. So please hand in any questions you might have and we will call them out uh, at the end in the Q&A session. Blythe, you have uh, forged an incredibly successful career in the financial industry. You started your career at JP Morgan Chase back in, in the 80s and you became a managing director at an incredibly young age of 28. At that point in time, the youngest person to achieve this status in the firm's history. After many successful years with JP Morgan, uh, among others, including as chief financial officer of JP Morgan's investment bank, but also head of global commodities, you choose a fundamentally different path. You joined a startup that in that point of time was one of the earliest movers in the blockchain space before eventually joining Motive as a founding partner in 2019. A very, very warm welcome. Fantastic to have you with us but today at the Deal Talk. Let's uh, turn into the questions. Can you tell us a little bit more about Motive, please? I'd be happy to, and 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 firstly, thank you, Stefan, very much uh, for having me and for your very kind words, um, indeed. Uh, so, what is uh, Motive? Uh, as you said, it's a young uh, firm uh, that uh, came into existence back in 2016. Uh, we are a 100% fintech specialized private investment firm. Some might say fintech obsessed. Actually, uh, we're we're super super focused, uh, and we are stage agnostic uh, investors that have the capacity to back firms all the way from uh, the pre-seed and venture capital stage through growth capital uh, and ultimately uh, buyout capital as well. So at every stage of an entrepreneur's evolution, and basically what we uh, exist to do is to build, back, and buy the companies that enable uh, the global financial economy. Look, let me dive into this, uh, Blythe. You started your career out in a, in a different space. And why did you choose to, A, get into private equity in general? And then in particular, as you mentioned, fintech obsessed. Why did you decide to specialize in fintech? Well, uh, by the time I left JP Morgan uh, after a 27-year career there, during which time I had done quite an array of different things uh, for the bank, uh, both building and, and managing bigger businesses, as well as uh, risk and control functions. Obviously, I'd had a fair amount of exposure to financial technology that powered uh, that enormous uh, financial services business. Uh, and by 2014, I had developed a point of view um, that there was something going on in the fintech space that was somewhere on the spectrum between scary and very exciting. I wasn't entirely sure which, um, but also that was largely uh, 
relatively speaking, ignored by uh, the industry that I uh, knew so well. Not surprisingly, because if you think about the, the 10 uh, years since the financial crisis uh, from 07 onwards, uh, the, the major financial firms were focused on uh, other things really uh, than uh, driving innovation through uh, technology. They, they had a more existential series of, of challenges. Um, but these new upstart firms uh, were really uh, demonstrating that the evolving you know, power of, of new uh, technologies that were coming of age in that period uh, could really be used in the financial services space to do a much better job of serving uh, customers, whether those be individual consumers or, or enterprise. And uh, that fascinated me uh, and led to uh, both my decision uh, to uh, run a fintech startup uh, that was an early mover in the enterprise blockchain space uh, and subsequently uh, to move from uh, an operating role into an investment role at Motive, uh, a firm that was focused exclusively uh, on fintech. And, and obviously, as we've, as we've watched what has ensued, uh, subsequently, uh, there's no doubt that that what is going on in the fintech space represents uh, both an enormous uh, investment opportunity, but a, a very, very powerful force for change in terms of improving uh, the efficacy uh, experience uh, of and access to financial services uh, in the world. I will come back to the fintech space in a sec and have a couple of questions, of course. Uh, in this regard, let me allow me to stay for for one minute on on and lean on your experience with with JP Morgan. Um, sure. You said at twenty years, uh, twenty seven years with the firm. How has this time shaped your approach to investing and risk management in private equity? Well, pr probably the best way to describe it is is actually to talk a little bit about Motive's uh, relatively unique operating model. Uh, which we refer to our IOI model, where we combine uh, investing with operating uh, and innovating capabilities within the firm. Of course, as an investment firm, uh, it goes without saying, table stakes are the ability uh, to have um, sophisticated investment capabilities. But relative to most others, where we over-index uh, in terms of our resource allocation and focus, on in-house operating knowledge and in-house uh, innovation and technology uh, capability. Back at JP Morgan, I was an operator for obviously many, many years uh, that made use of financial technology, uh, primarily in my case around investment banking and capital markets, uh, and saw the power of, of how technology drove change in uh, that space. Just to pick one example, I saw the wave of electronification of markets uh, during the course of the 80s and 90s uh, and into the 2000s that was was really quite extraordinary in terms of its scope and, and impact and 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 scale. Um, when I uh, left JP Morgan, uh, I became an entrepreneur and an operator, uh, combining my financial uh, background uh, with newfound technology uh, knowledge. Uh, and it felt like a natural step uh, from there uh, to switch to uh, being an investor professionally with all of that background. So really, um, it's the operating knowledge uh, that I had whilst uh, uh, at, whilst uh, working at JP Morgan, the entrepreneurial and innovation knowledge I picked up as as a CEO of a startup that I'm now using as an investor uh, at Motive. So I'm, I'm using essentially everything I learned through the course of a admittedly long career. Very very insightful. 
like you, you mentioned, today's economy is, is highly volatile. And you mentioned the global financial crisis. Having lived through it, you know, in a senior position at JP Morgan these days, what were your biggest learnings from that time? And how are you applying them today? But, you know, I think uh, having having had the, the opportunity and, and frankly the privilege to work um, at one of uh, what has evolved into being one of the best run uh, and largest uh, global financial institutions on the planet, um, I had a, a ringside seat and sometimes a, a role as an actor uh, in some of the most um, volatile and challenging market conditions uh, both uh, around the period of 2000-2001, uh, the bursting of the dot-com bubble, uh, the merchant energy uh, uh, crisis and this, uh, the market sell-off uh, that ensued, and then again uh, in 2007-8-9 uh, and beyond. Uh, and having lived through uh, those periods of, of turmoil, uh, you learn a lot about what it takes for financial services businesses uh, to survive and thrive. You also, unfortunately, learn a lot about uh, what it takes uh, for them to fail um, uh, and ultimately either disappear or be subsumed. Um, and those learnings uh, have certainly uh, helped inform uh, my post JP Morgan career uh, as an investor, uh, particularly as it relates to um, understanding how uh, the demand for uh, financial technology um, is driven uh, from those financial firms as these cycles uh, come and go. Um, the good news about financial technology and investing in it is that you're far less uh, sensitive as a general rule for, for most businesses, not all of them, but for most of them, to the uh, ebbs and flows of um, market uh, conditions, transactional volumes and the like. Uh, if you are investing in businesses that are providing mission-critical infrastructure uh, that enable those firms uh, to stay connected with their customers and serve those customers uh, in ways uh, that help uh, defend their competitive moat uh, and make them more effective operators. And interestingly, as the going gets tougher, uh, the incentive for major firms to rely on technology as an avenue for reducing cost, improving efficacy, reducing capital requirements, improving customer um, stickiness uh, and embeddedness uh, goes up. Uh, so many lessons from those periods of volatility. Yeah, look, I couldn't agree more really. One, I keep on saying one of the major differences, uh, you know, um, facing today's volatility and to some extent crisis that has to be, have to be managed uh, is that the same persons in many cases are still in charge that have and can take their learnings from the past, so uh, couldn't couldn't agree more. Look, let's move a little bit into the fintech space. And look, everyone at every cocktail party is talking about ChatGPT, and uh, it has been a wake up call. Uh, it seems for for many many pay, uh, people to spend attention to to the topic. Even Bloomberg more recently announces its generative AI model, a specific Bloomberg uh, GPT uh, dedicated for for uh, financial use case. How are these, in general, uh, developments that we are seeing in AI and, and the fight, you know, the battle between the giant tech firms, how, how is this impacting and, and changing the financial industry? And what will be, you know, associated to, to the, the first question, in your view, will be the largest disruptions that we have to 
uh, we or will see and, and which business models are, are threatened and others uh, that might emerge? Well, it's a great question. Um, always uh, dangerous to answer questions where you're asked to uh, predict the future, but I, you know, I, I'll give it a bash. Uh, you know, uh, candidly, I did this situation uh, in some ways reminds me of, you know, the phase one of the uh, uh, evolution of uh, widespread adoption of the internet. So thinking back to the very late 90s, early 2000s, um, you know, at, th at that stage, though, everyone was looking at this this sort of new phenomenon, uh, wondering, you know, would anyone ever really uh, trust the internet as a destination for doing business uh, of any kind, uh, e-commerce uh, business, uh, you know, not to mention uh, financial services business. Um, you know, people doubted that they weren't they weren't really sure what it what it meant. No one uh, yet had the ability to really predict, you know, what social social media would be or that social media would become a thing. Um, and and yet, you know, we look back now and realize that that was beginning the beginning of a wave of change that really changed everything about the world as we know it. And then by the time uh, 2009 or so rolled around, the smartphone, uh, the iPhone uh, uh, was released uh, and things accelerated again with the adoption of, of mobile and all of the uh, interactions that that has uh, facilitated. Thinking about um, generative AI, which has been a, a thing for a long time, uh, but not really commercially deployable um, because of the sheer uh, cost uh, and capacity, compute capacity uh, that is required to really make it effective as there's been this exponential expansion in, in, in the capacity of both storage and, and, uh, and computational capability, generative AI now really uh, is coming into a, a world of its own uh, and has realistic prospects for uh, immediate uh, commercial deployment. Um, Although you know one shouldn't underestimate the the costs associated with the, the extraordinary uh, uh, compute and storage demands that that will uh, that will create, uh, I think relative to the twenty year old uh, example I gave you of the first wave of the internet, I think it's rather more obvious to us today what are the implications of, of generative AI than than what were the implications of the arrival of the uh, widespread adoption of the internet way back then. Um, it's pretty clear that um, many activities uh, that involve computationally intense, analytically intense, reading intense, research intense, writing intense uh, outputs, inputs and outputs are going to be uh, threatened uh, and potentially displaced in large part uh, through uh, AI driven uh, capabilities. Um, I, I tend to try to be in, uh, you know, positive about this kind of uh, technological change. Um, there's no doubt that there's risk that jobs will be uh, will be put at risk. You know, just in our world, you know, thinking about certain trading activities, certain research uh, activities, certain customer interactions that are today done by humans that perhaps will not be in the future. Those jobs may well be lost. Uh, I believe that AI though will also. Um, contribute to the ways in which, for example, we learn and that we teach the next generation uh, of personnel uh, the skills that they need to survive uh, and thrive in the workplace. Uh, and so my sense is that uh, in just the same way that technology in the past has displaced, it has also fueled growth and created new job opportunities and certainly better ways uh, of serving customers in a, a variety of different ways. So I think this is a massively 
important uh, development. I think it is going to be as big as the internet was in 2000, 2001, as mobile was in 09 and beyond, at least. Uh, and as it relates to fintech, that this will be uh, one of the areas uh, most impacted uh, by uh, the advent of this technology, uh, generally beneficially. Super, super exciting. Look, Blythe, this is resonating. It's interesting, really very much with, with our view here at Moonfair. Bill Gates here recently said at the Munich Security Conference uh, that he considers AI even to be a, a larger movement and, and change than the entire internet. And if there's one thing for sure, as we speak, an enormous amount of resources, but in particular also money, is flowing into the space, not only from the Googles and Microsofts and the big five tech firms, but also from the venture industry. So there is an incredible dynamic uh, environment. And we at Moonfair, we are we are observing the space very, very closely to identify the best uh, investment opportunities on behalf of our community. Look, uh, let's move a little bit to in, into the macro world. And stating the obvious, the world has changed at a dramatic pace over the past 12, call it to 24 months. We have seen an unprecedented rise speed of rise and interest rates that of course has fundamentally changed not only the fintech valuations which is a mathematical topic but also called into question some of the you know business models the viability of the business models out there uh, which business models do you use would you say have you know were in session for for some 12 14 uh, 24 months ago are questioned right now and which might not have a future at all well, you know, I think there are examples of them uh, across the spectrum. Um, that there was an environment um, uh, that really ended last year, uh, where, due to the rate environment, the mon monetary policy environment, there was extraordinary uh, investor appetite to support businesses that were pursuing growth over almost every single other objective. And there's many of them. You know, you can see them in the buy now, pay later space. You can see them in various uh, payments applications. There's some of the uh, neobanking uh, uh, capabilities. There's a, there's a long list of, of businesses that could, in principle, um, be uh, uh, run with different objectives, but were 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 created and operated in a fashion that um, didn't pay attention to the long-term sustainability of profitability uh, in in the in the business, and they were rewarded. Um, uh, in fact, uh, you know. <laughs> It's one of the sources of uh, some of the more entertaining uh, C-suite um, uh, expletives uh, that I've encountered uh, over the years was the reaction of uh, mature financial services businesses to the relative valuations uh, of the you know old-fashioned, un uh, uh, out-of-fashion, uh, unfavored but profitable business models uh, that were. Uh, unable to fund themselves with the ease uh, uh, that others that you know really didn't have any clear path to profitability whatsoever. Um, that obviously has more or less completely reversed itself uh, today with you know far more focus on uh, uh, sustainability uh, of, of profitability and or at least at uh, very least uh, a clear path uh, to that. One of the challenges for some of the uh, young entrepreneurs uh, out there is that some of them haven't actually, had the experience of uh, dealing with those less friendly capital markets uh, and and how to actually run businesses 
for sustained profitability um uh you know over the long term um you know they get easy, easily uh, put into a position where they are pressured to cut costs uh but shrinking your way to glory is not an easy uh an easy path um so those that always had the basic basic business discipline um uh had a path uh, to profitability or, or were pursuing it anyway are finding life a lot easier uh today uh than those uh that did not and obviously those that were prudent um, ensured that they always had a long enough runway to endure a period of drought, uh, that they could continue to invest while their competitors uh, were suffering are those that are really uh, uh, doing best. And you know some of the uh, portfolio companies that, that, that we have uh, at Motive uh, are fortunate in, in, in that regard, fortunate or wise in that regard, uh, one of the factors that led to our, our, our picking them. Uh, that actually are able in this tough environment to take advantage of their relative strength uh, in positioning to grow market share uh, at the expense of others uh, that were more more challenged. And I don't think this period of of shakeout really is uh, is by any means uh, fully ended. To be honest with you. Yeah, look, you, you are saying that uh, the past ten years, probably for many, if not all industries, have been what I call honeymoon times, uh, and those yes. are over. And I believe for the young generation of founders and entrepreneurs, it's very healthy that they now, you know, have to learn to struggle more troubled water, I call it. Uh, yep. And I'm sure the entire industry will emerge even even stronger also from a management capability standpoint. Then let's yep. talk a little bit about, you know, what's what's ahead of us. And you said it. No one can read the future. That's that's clear. But what are the, the challenges in in the fintech industry in particular? The major challenges companies face over, let's say, a period of the next twelve months, in your view. Well, I think you know, for for some um, fintechs that serve uh, you know major financial services firms, there, there are real actually actually real opportunities in in this business uh, because the demand curve for their capabilities uh, is actually going up in this tough operating environment. Um, so uh, companies that um, offer their customers the ability to uh, outsource, streamline and, and operate at lower cost uh, and, and better efficacy uh, functionality that is non-core and doesn't represent a uh, a proprietary competitive advantage are actually seeing the demand for their services in this environment go up. Um, one challenge that all firms, uh, fintech or otherwise, is facing uh, are facing is, is of course, uh, inflationary pressure. Uh, the cost of labor uh, has mounted, not to mention other uh, componentry, um, but labor uh, in particular uh, in this environment. And and again, there are many uh, entrepreneurs that you know really haven't paid attention to the fact that they need. Uh, in their long-term contracts to have uh, inflation indexing uh, baked in. And even some of those that have that, at, at least in principle, haven't actually had the experience of navigating the uh, tricky conversations that you have to have with your customers about actually effectuating your right to increase prices. So there's a whole chapter and verse that, you know, that we have to uh, work through uh, uh, with many companies, just literally just working through, you know, how do you handle contracting and recontracting and renegotiating uh, business uh, in, in this environment? Um, I think you make another good point about regulatory uh, scrutiny. Um, it is becoming clear um, that uh, regulators around the world, financial regulators in particular, but not limited to the finance space, 
um, are more and more acutely aware of the risks uh, presented by technology vendors to uh, their regulated businesses um, in a first order sense. Uh, and those risks uh, obviously come as, as the scale of fintech service providers grows, but also as, as risks uh, in the form of cyber vulnerabilities uh, and uh, resiliency, availability, all, all of these things that affect, have a, have a knock-on effect on the uh, ability of um, businesses uh, uh, to perform, particularly in a high-stress uh, or a high-risk environment. As you know, uh, also in the last few months, the market has been in, let's call it, search and destroy uh, mode, uh, looking for the weakest links uh, in the financial ecosystem, uh, we haven't had an, uh, yet, uh, although there's clearly uh, a risk of that, severe asset quality problems uh, in uh, the financial services space, but we've had significant liquidity problems uh, and that combined uh, with uh, the risk of uh, loss of confidence either in business models or uh, in the viability uh, or security of companies has led to some very high profile bank runs and, and collapses, as, as you know. Um, and interestingly, those uh, those developments were actually, in some senses, exacerbated by uh, the availability of, of digital uh, capabilities. So the fact that uh, social media can disseminate noise at the speed of, uh, of light, uh, the fact that you or I and indeed uh, and, uh, institutions can withdraw money from a financial institution using a phone, uh, a tablet or a laptop. Um, and, and, you know, resulting in uh, withdrawals in the tens and tens of billions of dollars in a single day is quite extraordinary. So regulators are very, very focused on all of these concerns. None of the post-GFC uh, reforms really addressed any of that. And you're going to see a wave of regulation that is thinking about cyber, about social media and noise dissemination, about liquidity uh, and so on, that will, will increase the cost of doing business and financial services and will create some opportunities for fintechs uh, who are able to address uh, that on behalf of their financial services customers. Well, I think it's so refreshing to to listen to you and I can feel, and I'm sure the audience does as well, the, the passion for, for fintech. Uh, let me round up um, the section here around fintech by asking you, what excites you most about it? Is there any particular angle that you would mention that really, you know, uh, triggers your your passion that everyone can feel? Well, I, you know, that that could take the rest of the session and beyond. But I, let's see. I, I would say, um, first of all, the scale of the opportunity. Um, the way we think about fintech, it's not just the the spend that financial services firms uh, uh, incur on technology that drives their businesses or fuels their businesses. It's also the spend by non-financial services firms that have that, that have a, a, a desire and a need to embed financial uh, capabilities within their businesses. So between embedded finance and direct fintech, that's a $10 trillion revenue opportunity uh, for fintech firms uh, to go after. So scale, uh, I think, number one. Number two is complexity. Um, you know, we, we as investors uh, embrace complexity. We find it uh, fascinating. Our in-house technology capabilities means that we have the ability to, uh, as well as operating knowledge, the ability to create, uh, have context and create real conviction in what we do. Um, and, and having that capability uh, makes uh, being an investor a lower risk proposition uh, than not. So that's, uh, I think, uh, super, uh, super exciting. And then the last thing I would say is, is, 
the sheer distance that the financial services sector still has to travel. You know, back in uh, 2015, I used to dine out on making a comment that, you know, it seems pretty extraordinary that, that you know, we have uh, autonomous self-driving vehicles on the streets, uh, or back then we were about to, um, and yet we still can't manage better than, you know, what was then T plus three and is still, you know, T plus two settlement, you know, for, for getting cash in return for selling your equity in, in many markets. Um, the, the, the financial services sector relative to certain others that have been completely transformed by technology still has quite a long way to go. And that's before you start imagining the capabilities of generative AI and other things uh, that really have yet to, to come into full focus. So lots of things to be excited about. I hear it. Uh, look, Blythe, we talked a bit about your phenomenal career. Let me ask you, how did you transition from, from being a CEO of a startup, a technology startup, to becoming or being an, being an investor? Well, you know, I, I needed to find the right home. Um, and, uh, and what I uh, was lucky enough to find a motive was not only a, a group of people that I truly admire and genuinely enjoy working with uh, day to day, um, but who are absolutely convinced in a different way of doing uh, private equity investing uh, with this proprietary uh, investor, operator, uh, innovator uh, model. And given that uh, I, in my career, have uh, had the opportunity to do all three of those uh, things, uh, finding a, a firm that had that as its core value proposition uh, was what attracted me into the space. Um, you know, not to be pejorative about, uh, you know, uh, private equity as a, as a, as a general rule, um, but there are instances where, uh, you know, you could think of private equity as being about, you know, buying a firm, you know, adding some leverage, cutting a lot of costs and flipping, you know, the resulting company that's, you know, looking a bit fitter and leaner for, you know, a several increased turns of multiple expansion. That just doesn't excite me. What excites us at, at, at Motive is the ability to drive value creation through the deployment of technology and to be able to see that opportunity before it's obvious. And, and as you can tell from the things I've been talking about, I, I really, really enjoy that. So that's why I found a home at Motive. Thank you so much for this. Look, uh, as you might know, uh, I've spent quite some time as an operator with KKR in the private equity industry and have a natural, call it fascination for, for operating models. And why is it? Because uh, as you said earlier, value creation is all what it is about. Uh, it's generating alpha. And you at Motive, you're pursuing a quite uh, unusual uh, model combining you know, investors, operators, and and innovators. Uh, we touched, or you touched a little bit uh, on it, but can you, and I'm a big believer in examples, can you give uh, me and the audience an example um, of you know how you applied this operating model and how it was driving yeah. the success? Well, just to... To clarify, you know, for the benefit of, of our watchers, um, we have, you know, approximately 200 in-house technologists. That That is not something you would find at most uh, investment uh, firms. So these are people that are, they're not pushing PowerPoint. They're, they're, they're engaged in writing code. Uh, of course, they're involved in, in uh, due diligence and the underwriting uh, of companies, which provides us the conviction uh, behind the opportunity, whether that's identifying older technology that could be renovated or uh, best-in-class technology that we just want to get behind and really uh, help drive with growth capital. Um, 
beyond that, actually working directly with uh, our portfolio companies uh, on their technology uh, roadmaps uh, and uh, helping them where uh, where there's a need and a desire, uh, actually in some cases execute uh, the delivery of those roadmaps, both helping them with build versus buy choices, but actually also uh, the build uh, in, in, in many cases. Um, so those are the ways in which we uh, we function uh, differently, I think, than, uh, than other firms. And that's all informed by uh, a number of executives uh, who have backgrounds like mine, uh, who have run companies, whether it be startups, uh, all the way through to multi-decker billion dollar public companies. Uh, Jeff Yabuki, our executive chairman, for example, uh, ran uh, Pfizer for 15 years uh, in his tenure, you know, by no, by any measure, one of the most successful uh, public fintech CEOs of all time. Uh, when he looks at, uh, at businesses in, uh, in the banking and payment space, has extraordinary in-depth knowledge uh, around where the bodies are buried, where the opportunities lie, uh, and the ability to, to pursue that. Um, so uh, there, are, there are many examples of it, but it's really the, the context, the conviction, and how deeply we work in partnership with our, uh, our portfolio company uh, entrepreneurs that differentiates the model. Look, I hear you. We at Moonfair, we are big believers in this active ownership model and, uh, you know, the best players and largest players out there, they all pursue it. The way I understand it is that you are quite differentiated having these 200 people, you know, with a very clear tech vertical focus over and above, you know, uh, senior uh, experience as a manager, as a founder and CEO. Let me ask you, uh, during your time at uh, Motive, what are the three most important things you have learned uh, at Motive when it comes to deal-making? Okay. So the hardest thing about this question is limiting it to three, because uh, I've learned a lot. Um, I, I think one thing is is it's about uh, starting early. You know, if you show up um, and meet uh, a founder after, you know, bankers have been engaged and you're invited to participate in a round, uh, you've lost all the opportunity uh, to really deeply get to know a business uh, and the people that are running it um, that will differentiate uh, the both the quality of the job that you can do for them, but also the quality of the opportunity that you can create for yourself. So I think um, uh, developing proprietary, uh, early proprietary relationships has been uh, absolutely critical. Um, the second thing would be uh, uh, not to shy away from complexity or opacity. Uh, there's no lack of that in the financial services and fintech space. Um, a lot of these businesses are just a lot harder to understand, um, both in terms of their risk and their opportunity than uh, more conventional businesses in other industry uh, sectors. Um, that means that there is a, a very uh, legitimate role for specialization uh, and having specialized uh, knowledge and focus uh, really differentiates your ability to develop the, the context uh, and conviction around situations where there is complexity, opacity, uh, and where you have to think several steps ahead. You know, we've done a number of investments where we combine companies over a period of years uh, where the vision was there from the start. The execution took years, but the vision was there uh, from the start. A great example would be the company that is today Invest Cloud, uh, which over a period of you know two or three years uh, was the combination of uh, three distinct companies, one of which was a carve out from a much larger uh, company, Fiserv, uh, and the others were uh, were standalone companies. Uh, today, that is one of the largest 
financial uh, uh, marketplaces that connects manufacturers of investable product with uh, distributors. Uh, it's like six plus trillion dollars flowing through the pipes of, of, of that uh, platform. Uh, another similar example, uh, focused on the old uh, space uh, that we, we love a lot is uh, Case. Sorry to mention a, a competitor of yours, but a, a great company um, who's focused on uh, taking the process out of uh, the uh, lives of uh, investment advisors uh, and getting them back to doing what they do best, which is advising their customers. As you know, the process associated with um, investing in alternatives is horrendous, uh, frankly, much too much uh, paperwork, PowerPoint, uh, paperwork, PDFs, and, and so on. Uh, so the, these are uh, uh, great examples of uh, uh, of things that we, uh, we've enjoyed digging into the complexity and seeing the opportunity there. The last thing I'd say is, you know, uh, we, we, we have learned to avoid super high risk uh, uh, guesswork. Um, so while we get super excited about very early stage technologies uh, that have great promise, um, we, we don't um, uh, add great value by being able to select the winners and the losers in, in, in very early stage evolving technologies. So take the blockchain uh, uh, space as an example. Um, uh, uh, early on, that was a space we haven't been uh, heavy investors in because selecting the winners and losers in, in, in that uh, early technology uh, evolution uh, is really uh, very difficult to do. What we're much more interested in is as that technology matures, uh, investing in businesses that already have a moat, already have a network and could deploy a new technology successfully through it, whether that be blockchain or generative AI, and where we see the value that can be created in, in monetizing uh, that network. Um, so those are three three examples of, uh, of of lessons learned. Although I think probably I made that something more like six, but I'm going to label them as as, as three lessons. <laughs> Thanks so much, Blythe. You you mentioned separating the the losers from the winners, and one thing there, and, and apart from technology and business model and sustainability of business models, one thing I particularly found uh, you know compelling and and difficult. Uh, in at least in my career, is really selecting uh, and and backing the right founders and and CEO. Based on your experience, can you share with us? And I personally made another, by the way, mistake. I always waited too long to separate from certain managers in my career, uh, and I try to overcome it. But can you share with us what you look for in a leadership team? What are the characteristics yeah. that make you? feel comfortable about you know, the ability to execute and drive the business. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, this is an absolutely critical uh, part of, of the ingredients. You know, our, our business is backing uh, entrepreneurs. Uh, and so uh, finding the right uh, teams to do that um, at the right stages uh, is, a, is a critical capability. Um, you know, as you know, uh, also uh, the right leader at a founding and uh, early stage of a company may not be the right leader at the scaling uh, and uh, later stages of, of the company. And so uh, to, your, to your point, having to make those uh, uh, decisions um, uh, uh, and evaluations is an important part of the ingredient. Um, but, but essentially what we, we look for, um, you know, first and foremost, is, is, is a team and a, and a, and a CEO uh, that their teams are willing to follow with great enthusiasm. So it's the ability to create followership. Great leaders create followership. followership. 
there's no one in, there's no one recipe for doing that. So you can have a, a whole array of different styles. And if, in fact, if you looked, if, if you met every single one of the CEOs of uh, Motive's portfolio companies, you, I think, would be quite surprised at the diversity of approach, of style, of, of experience, because it, 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 you know, leadership comes in many different, uh, in many different forms. But um, having people whose people believe in them is step number one. Um, the second thing I, I would say is is around transparency. Uh, if you're going to accept other people's money at scale into your business in a meaningful way, uh, you have that fiduciary responsibility uh, uh, and working with your investors in a way that um, makes them feel uh, embraced uh, and and mo most importantly in our case, where the leader will take advantage of the capabilities of the firm. If you're only uh, uh, accepting money from motive because it's money, you're, you're, you're working with the wrong firm because you're leaving two thirds or three quarters of the value proposition on the table. So transparency and engagement, um, the willingness to talk about the ch challenges and the areas of the opportunity, uh, that's what we look for because that's where we do the best job uh, in supporting uh, the people that we back. And then the last thing uh, that I would say uh, is a conundrum. <laughs> we look for, on the one hand, people that have the confidence to lead through uncertainty, through pivots, through horrendously challenging market conditions, uh, yet at the same time have the humility to know what they don't know. Uh, and it is a rare bird that combines extreme uh, confidence with an appropriate degree uh, of humility. And, and looking for that is something uh, that, we, that we're always on, uh, on the search for. Impressive. Thanks so much for sharing. Look, Blythe, uh, last year or so, you raised your latest uh, flagship fund. And uh, congratulations, by the way. I think you closed at 2.5 billion or so. And, but since then, you know, the stating the office, the economic landscape, and in particular, the fintech industry was, has changed quite quite a bit. How has, you know, approach, your approach to evaluating investment opportunities, how has it changed uh, to adapt to the new reality? So it's interesting, actually, because um, in the space that we operate in, uh, we call it fintech, but we, I should probably define that a little bit for you. You know, we 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 don't we're not typically uh, investors in direct to consumer businesses, nor nor businesses that have heavy risk taking balance sheets uh, in their own right, uh, nor heavily regulated businesses. Although there are always you know exceptions to, to that. Um, uh, or partial exceptions to that, we may invest in a, a bigger business that has some component of its business that that, that involves that. Rather, what we we invest in is software businesses and uh, associated business services capabilities um, that serve financial firms, uh, uh, you know, for for a living. And and that sector hasn't been as impacted by the change in economic circumstances. As those businesses that are, um, you know, directly interacting with consumers and that have heavy uh, risk-taking balance sheets and, and so on, everybody, uh, of course, has been affected by the change uh, inflation environment. Uh, everybody is affected by, or many people are affected by the change transactional environment. We have some businesses that have transactional sensitivity. Uh, in those cases, we were careful to ensure that those businesses had uh, ample. Uh, cash on hand because we, we, we knew 
cycles come and go in, in financial markets in particular. Uh, Forge would be a great example of that. This is a, a company that operates a marketplace for private equity securities of pre-IPO uh, uh, companies um, uh, that are still private uh, and, and associated services uh, around that space has been adversely impacted by the decline in activity uh, in the space, but has had sufficient capital uh, on hand to be able to uh, use this period to continue to invest in uh, building the, the capabilities that will serve them well uh, as as the cycle uh, picks back up again. Um, so, uh, you know, th these are the things that we've been very, very focused on, ensuring that the that, that businesses have sufficient runway, ensuring that they have a, or are already or have a path uh, to profitability, that the path that gets them there is not a strategy of shrinking uh, to greatness that's based on hope, because uh, that's, a, that's a tough path. Um, it, you know, cutting costs to be leaner, uh, to be prudent is critical, uh, but selling the family jewels, uh, you know, is, is you know, or, or just starving your business of in investment capability is, is, is pretty fatal. Uh, so those are the ways in which we've, we've changed our uh, our, our thought process uh, or the way that we, we're currently working uh, with CEOs. But actually, by and large, from our point of view, the, the change in environment has increased the opportunity set for us because, frankly, we were struggling with valuations uh, 12 to 24 months ago and, and walking away from all sorts of interesting opportunities that were just priced to a point of insanity and, and beyond. Uh, and, and it was frustrating. You know, uh, the, the sort of sobering up of markets has meant that uh, you know, valuations today are just uh, a lot more attractive uh, than they were. There are still amazingly great businesses and leaders of businesses uh, out there. Uh, I think that uh, 2023 is going to prove to be a really interesting vintage year. Uh, and, and as I say that, I'm speaking about uh, venture capital all the way through to uh, growth buyout and take, uh, take private uh, situations. Um, so lots of opportunity in this environment. Blythe, I, I couldn't agree more. And we are spending, you know, with our research and content team, quite a bit of resources on exactly analyzing and undermining with data what you've just said. People, you will remember this post, uh, the dot-com bubble, 9-11 said, tech is dead. Then we had the great financial crisis, the same theme, that uh, tech is dead. Now some people, uh, I heard even in the industry saying tech is dead. The contrary is true. The best vintages, all data show this are, you know, during times of crisis. And we have seen incredible valuation contractions, of course, in the fintech space, in the growth space, in some cases down 60%. I have also, you know, uh, deep, quite deep insights into how the valuations in private markets developed, in particular in, in the US, and they came down nicely. So probably one of the yep. best is to, to invest, I, I fully agree. Look, I would they, love- They took to their time. They took yeah. their time to come down, but you're right. They've they've uh, they've they've come down. <laughs> no, no, it's totally true. Some people shouldn't, you know, adjust to the new reality, but at some point in time, they have to. Uh, and these are still great companies, so um, it's a it's a you know a promising time. I would call it. Look, I would love a life to continue this, and uh, hopefully, you know, we will have time uh, at another occasion. But uh, it's time to to wrap up. And uh, before we go to the Q and A, I would love to ask you one question that I'm always asking in these deal talks, which is what would you advise your younger self if you would go back 20 years in time? You know, I've recently had to think, I've had to, I've been asked this question a few times, as you might imagine, over, over, over the years. Um, 
and and generally speaking, I've given an answer which I'll share with you. But then I'll but I'll share you uh, share with you another answer that I've I've, I've had to start thinking about um, to supplement that. The, the, the first thing is if you're not enjoying what you're doing, find something else, uh, but don't become a grasshopper because uh, if you believe you know, if the grass is always greener, you'll never land and stay somewhere long enough to build the the, ca- the, the capital, intellectual capital, political capital. Uh, experiential capital that you need to become uh, really valuable uh, uh, in, in what you do, but but we work such long hours. It's 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 grueling no matter what you do. You have to enjoy what you do. So follow your heart and 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 ensure you find a place where you enjoy the people you work with and the substance of what you do. And the rest will follow as long as you work hard, do your homework, uh, and show up uh, and, and turn off that snooze button that that you referenced in your video earlier. Um, the thing that I've had to start thinking about more recently is, you know, me 20 years ago had an opportunity to learn in a completely different way that the young uh, people of today are enduring. And I think I had it easier than they did because I didn't have to deal with going through school, uh, business school in the case of my daughter, for example, during COVID uh, or starting a new job. Uh, uh, during COVID and then living in a world of hybrid or in some cases, you know, majority, vast majority uh, remote interactions. And I think about the way that I learned. I learned by observing people, by interacting with people, by talking to people. And it was spontaneous interaction. It was not scheduled and it was not in these horrible 40 or 30 or 60 minute intervals, you know, in two dimensions where, where reading, you know, many things, including, you know, the whole the whole picture is very hard to do. And, and I, I think that is a real challenge that the uh, youngsters of today face. You know, you or I, you know, we we learned all of that stuff in a different era uh, and have it. And and now, you know, we quite enjoy interacting uh, over Zoom because it's more efficient. We don't have to spend time traveling. But but those still learning, it's a challenge. So don't underestimate, but uh, for, for those at the beginning of your career, the importance of direct human interaction uh, finding those relationships, uh, fostering the, the the opportunity to have a mentor, to have a sponsor, going out of your way to take advantage of the opportunities that, that you can create or are presented to you um, to interact in person. I can't emphasize how important uh, the the human aspect of building business uh, relationships is and, and not falling into the false sense of security that just because everything appears to be happening on Zoom, that's how the winners will win because that's not how the winners will win. So true what you are saying. Um, I, I couldn't really agree more. And it is so uh, valuable to share this insight. It is really, uh, this is what it's all about, um, about the human being moments, uh, and in particular in person. Look, let's move. We got dozens from, from questions from the audience um, in, in the system. In the meantime, let's move to, to the Q&A, please. And one a question to start and kick it off with is, you mentioned your experience in enterprise blockchain. Do you think this space will ever have its own chat GPT moment? Many people have talked about blockchain for years, but the breakthrough yeah. is not yet at least visible, I guess, to most people uh, on the outside. No, I don't, I don't think it'll have a moment uh, as obvious as that. To the extent that that moment uh, was going to occur, it was back in 2015, 16 or 17, sometime around there when the concept became popularized uh, and better understood, and the distinctions between crypto and distributed ledger technology began to be understood. The challenge is that w- with uh, enterprise blockchain, uh, that uh, 
the network effects um, that it exists uh, or has the capability to exploit and take advantage of also act as impediments to change. Um, and so the sheer uh, 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 cost uh, and uh, uh, complexity of the change needed, uh, for example, to uh, shift uh, post-trade uh, infrastructure involving uh, multiple independent uh, parties from one framework to another uh, is, is what stands in the way of more rapid adoption. I'm not by any means suggesting uh, that enterprise blockchain is uh, dead or will not ever rise to its full promise. It's not dead and it will rise to its full promise. It's just not going to have a moment where everyone says, aha, let's go. It, the, the opportunities will arise, for example, as, as, as uh, uh, different jurisdictions embrace things like rapid uh, uh, accelerated settlement, settlements, so the opportunity for T plus one or less uh, settlement uh, in securities will drive the adoption of DLT-based solutions. A great example of that is the, the project that DTCC here in the United States is, is uh, uh, driving uh, for precisely that purpose. And there are many others. Um, and, and so over time, you'll see adoption. It's just not going to happen uh, with that kind of an aha uh, moment. And it won't have the kind of direct direct consumer embrace um, because enterprise blockchain is all about the behind-the-scenes stuff. And in an ideal world, the consumer of it shouldn't even need to know that a blockchain is involved. Very much also, frankly, aligned blockchain. This is a fundamental technology and it's uh, there to stay. One question we've got here. Uh, we touched on, you know, the firm's motives, unique operating model, but there seems to be more, even more interest to understand it in more detail in the audience. How, the question is, how does your operating model, motives operating model work and seek to drive a better ROI than that of more traditional private equity firms? So, it, it, private, private investing starts with obviously evaluating and underwriting a new company. Um, your ability to do that uh, requires that you develop, you, you understand the context within it, uh, within which its, op its opportunity exists, and then develop conviction in that company's right to win or ability to win in that context. We use our in-house operating knowledge and our in-house technology capability to be able to identify and develop that uh, uh, context and uh, conviction. That reduces the risk of making any given investment. If you have people in-house who've been there and done it, uh, or have actually run the businesses that are at risk of being disrupted by this new company, uh, or have run the businesses that might be a buyer for this new capability, um, then you can understand whether this company is onto something uh, or, or not. It's just one, one example. Um, if a company has, uh, is at a later stage, uh, has an existing network, but has perhaps been uh, a division of a larger company that has been unloved because it's been non-core, the company's had other higher priorities, for example, it's typically going to be demonstrating the, the attributes of being unloved. It's going to be slow growth. Uh, it may have uh, customer attrition. Um, it, it may have new competitors that are, that are uh, arising. How might we make an investment by buying that business? Uh, we'll, we'll make that investment by understanding how one could invest in the capabilities of this underloved business uh, to modernize it and drive value creation and, and in fact offer 
and create a new management team. In this case, we may be bringing in a new management team. So find the new management team. Where do we go to find the management team? We go to the, the motive network of, of in-house and, and external uh, relationships. We very often have motive executives running companies that we're uh, turning around uh, in the C-suite, including at the CEO level. Not, all the, not always, but very often. So, And having that in-house knowledge, uh, again, reduces the risk associated with making tough decisions to invest in businesses that from the outside world may not look to have that uh, great uh, opportunity. And then in some cases, you know, we work alongside, um, you know, hand in hand uh, with our partners in, in portfolio companies to accelerate, not just with our money, but with our technology building capabilities, their path to uh, delivering the best product available in the market which very often at the point at which we're investing, they do not yet have. Um, and that can accelerate uh, their their path to profitability or their path to uh, success in many cases by, uh, you know, years, uh, certainly many months. Uh, and having and having that uh, ability to draw on um, resources that have skin in the game and knowledge, not just going to an outsource uh, technology vendor that, isn't aligned, it doesn't have financial uh, incentive to see your uh, company succeed and really is just incentivized by what you pay them. It's a very different prospect. Working with uh, technologists uh, who uh, reside within a firm whose very success depends on your success makes uh, the choice of working with Motive a much more attractive one uh, for, for many entrepreneurs where they need that help. Not every not every company needs that help, uh, to, be, to be clear, but it's available if, uh, where the opportunity arises. Lyoth, look, that, that makes perfect sense to me. Look, unfortunately, time is flying. We have so many more questions, and you know, uh, but we will not get them uh, get there in, in time. So let me thank you, really. That was so insightful, Lyoth, for your time, for your insights, for everything that you have shared uh, with us. Terrific to have you with us today. And also a big thank you to, to the audience for listening into it. One last remark. Um, there will be a poll coming up. We really want to learn. We want to make this format uh, better and improve uh, over and over again. So please, uh, it takes two minutes or so to fill it out, share and and uh, you know give us please your feedback. And then you know I hope that everyone is dialing in uh, for the next uh, deal talk session, which is uh, scheduled for June twentieth. You will all receive an invitation. Thank you so much for your patience and for listening into our talk today uh, and hope to see you soon all again. Thanks for listening. For more episodes, search for Deal Talk wherever you listen to your podcasts. Want to know more about investing in private markets? Visit moonfair.com.